Hey everybody, this is Justin, the audio producer at We Eat Art. We want to get back to airing these interviews once a week, but we could use some help, so we set up a Patreon. We need a little cash to keep this train running on time. We're also hoping we could venture out into different types of episodes, like live guest panels, interviews in other cities besides New York and LA, and guided museum walkthroughs. You can donate and get all sorts of goodies, like exclusive episodes, stickers, zines, and of course you'll be secure in knowing that you're helping us continue to serve up sumptuous episodes episodes of interviews with savory artists. Head on over to patreon.com backslash we eat art. Again, that was patreon.com backslash we eat art. And seriously, thank you. And then I was excited that you remember. I was like, I'm not going to bug them. If it's not happening, I'm not going to be weird. Uh. I'm John Mejias on the East Coast. I am Zach Smith on the West Coast. Once again, you're listening to We Eat Art, the podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... People are like, oh, you must really love nature. I'm like, yeah, I like it how I am liking it right now, looking at it from the indoors with my TV also. This episode, we're talking to Robin O'Neill about... I really think that I'm built this way. Like, whatever it is, that mechanism that turns all of these that way, I think that I kind of can't really help it, which makes me sound like a savant or something, though, so I worry about that a bit. I don't know. Uh, in Robin's lovely studio. Hi, guys. I'm Right now, I'm looking at Robin's amazing sketchbook, which maybe we'll get to later. I'm going to briefly describe it because it's a, a perfect studio. Really? Yeah, you've got a kitchen over there as part of the same room. That's oh, true. Spacious. It's well lit. Thank you. There is a beefcake calendar over there. <laughs> and you've got lots of poetry in reach, just in case you need, like, Inspiration right away. Like right away, you're just like, if yeah. there's an emergency. You grab it, which I saw you already did. Yeah. Yeah, it's went, helpful, went right? for the Patricia Lockwood right away. And you've got an award having corn. <laughs> I'm from Nebraska, so that's that. Well, all right. So yeah. you were born in Nebraska. I was, yep. 77, Omaha, Nebraska. Were your parents artists? Or are they in the corn business? <laughs> they weren't in the corn business, <laughs> and they were not artists at all. I had a grandmother who was an artist who and was also a theater director, and she wrote plays. And she was into poetry, but I mean, she taught me to paint with oils when I was five, so that was a big part of my upbringing with her. But my parents, my mom was basically a mom and later became a teacher, and my dad worked for the railroad. Okay. Yeah, straight out of high school. He just went, and he started by kicking what they called bums off of the trains. So was he a railroad dick? I guess for a while, and they, but I mean, he was only 18, so he didn't know what he was doing. He probably more just like went and had conversations with them and maybe even hung out with them and partied with them oh. and then let them about their business. I thought he would have a big stick. You're yeah. speculating, you haven't asked. <laughs> no, I should have asked. Isn't it weird, these questions about parents? I mean, I should know better. All I know is then eventually he started to be something in an office, and then... By the time I was like 25, he was the vice president of Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad. So it was a real old-fashioned American success story. In the mailroom, right, all the way up. All the way up. Yeah. But he could have been a real dickhead in those early days. I need to next time I'll ask him. I'll ask him on Father's Day. Well, you know, like in the hobo stories, they're like the railroad dick. That's that right. That's the name. That's the of name. Those guys who kick you off the train, the railroad dick. God, he was a railroad dick. And I, you know. <laughs> You're right, God. This is heartbreaking to me, but it's true. I, I don't want to break your heart. No, yeah. it's true. I said it without knowing the terminology for what he did. All right, so 
grandma was teaching you to oil paint. Yeah. Now my grandfather used to sit me down in the basement in front of like a Cezanne and he would go, does that look like that yet? And I'd be like, no. And then he hit me with a ruler. So. Wow. <laughs> your grandma didn't do that. No, but I love that you were exposed to Cezanne early on too. I don't. No, but anyway, not in that way. No, no, no. My grandmother was much different. We were looking at what you could get at the craft, you know, craft store. We were doing Bob Ross style, okay. which I love, and I still really love that. And if you look around, I mean, I still make landscapes. It's actually really connected to. Yeah, all your trees are happy trees. They're pretty happy in the clouds. Yeah. The clouds are talking to us too. So, you know, it made a big impact, but no, it was very nurturing. And But there was no high art involved for a long, long time, not until I was in high school, and I had a pretty good art teacher. Was your grandma involved in that kind of art, or was she more just like a you know creative big hat in the garden painter? Yeah, she was more like that. She would do, you know, neighborhood shows or shows at the church, stuff like that. But she was more successful, I would say, in theater. So that was more her calling, even though she had a real facility for it. But it was more craft-oriented. And we would make jewelry and stuff like that, which I loved. But it was very, I, I hate to say Midwestern, but it felt very Midwestern, you know? I mean, even at times, even now, today, I feel... Like, I'm just doing a kind of more concentrated version in my life of what she was doing. I can see that. It's weirdly true of a lot of people, I feel like we, right? Like, we interview people on here. Yeah, there's always a little connection between childhood and what they're doing now. Yeah. Some of the guests don't even realize until we bring it out of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you guys are doing for me, so, too. Okay. Yeah. So, fine art. Your first interaction with, like, oh, art is a job you could do. That would be a different thing. It took a long time. The first time I ever knew that, well, in high school, I kind of knew it. I lived in Texas at this time, and I would go, and we have legitimately great museums in Texas. And so I met an artist, and I don't even know who, what their name was, and I still don't. And it was just someone, I go, so you teach or whatever. I was in high school trying to figure it out. And they said, no, this is actually all I do. And I remember going, you sit in your house, where your studio, in your garage, and you just do, you paint all day. And it blew my mind. And that was the first time I knew it. But I never, even though that was all I wanted, I still thought back, and I say this all the time, did you ever know, I don't know exactly your age, but I grew up with a show called Too Close for Comfort. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. yeah. So Ted Knight played, he was a cartoonist, right? But he, he sat like he this. He did Cosmic Cow. Cosmic exactly. Cow. Oh, my God. You guys are my people. Thank you very much for knowing that. Look, I'm wearing a sweatshirt right now. It's a little different, but every day also, he wore sweatpants and sweatshirts, and he had, and I like stuffed animals, and I like animals, and he just sat at his drafting table overlooking San Francisco, drawing all day. That was, I would say, before that person I met in high school. That, I go, I want to be exactly like that. And I really did set out from that moment on to be T Ted Knight in Too Close for Comfort. The funny thing about Ted was that they would show, like, I thought this was very realistic. As they, like, he did Cosmic Cow. Like, that was his thing. And he had, like, a Cosmic Cow puppet. And, you know, that was his job. Yep. That he drew with. But he also would do, like, landscapes and, like, serious That's oil right. paintings all the time. Like, and I was like, all those guys are like that. Like, yeah. all the comic guys are like, well, this is my personal work. You know, <laughs> it's, it's like a, it's a pineapple. <laughs> They do have that side work. Everyone has it. Yeah. That was true to the job of a cartoonist. And he had Monroe. Oh, my God. I love it. He also Monroe. took the time to worry about his daughters. 
And they were hot. Those daughters were really hot. I remember oh, yeah. that. Oh, my God. <laughs> and they had this crazy, weird paint on, like this uh, stripe thing going on on their wall that I was obsessed with, too. That that really dictated my color choices. I totally in life. forgot the stripe. Oh, I, you I know it now it that I said clearly. it. Your work, in your own words, is about horror and tragedy and bleakness. Yeah. But... It's also kind of goofy. Yeah, no, it has definitely, yeah. <laughs> it has that. And I'm glad, but not everybody always, I mean, I would say hopefully more than 50% of people see that, but honestly, I'm always relieved if people see that. I also think there's hope. I don't say that as much. I mean, it is dark overall, and not just because it's usually not relying on color. No, there's a lot of goofiness. Wouldn't you say, though, especially when the little sweatsuit guys were in there? I mean, they were goofy for... Sweatsuits are always goofy. No like, matter what. There's no... <laughs> except for... Even the Unabomber. Yeah. Like, sweatsuits never come across. Comfort like, is goofy. Yeah. yeah. Hey, how about Heaven's Gate cult? And those guys all killed themselves with their match... The purple sweatpants and sweatshirts on. So sweatshirts figure largely in your personal mythology. For whatever reason, it started with Ted Knight... This is my own design. Yeah, I feel like you have to be really dedicated to sweatshirts to be in LA wearing a sweatshirt that's sleeveless. Because yeah. it's a completely self-defeating garment. Do you draw with a puppet as well? Oh my God, no, I don't. But I have John Goodman over. I've had him in my studio for like 15, 20 wacky. Oh my God, that's sweatshirt too, that's right. But look, so now we're matching. I'm, all, I'm wearing a hoodie similar to my John Goodman statue. Uh, yeah, no, I'm pretty dedicated. One time, my friends made me go to this group meditation thing, and I swear to God, and I mean, I do meditate occasionally, and it's something I do need to do more often, but this one, I was just in this strange mood where when I came out of it, the whole time, I had been kind of hallucinating an image of me wearing a black sleeveless hoodie pullover, and I knew that I needed to go. And so I went on Hanes.com and bought like tons. These are children's size. And I just bought the large children's size and made tons of this. So this is my studio so we're, uniform. we're at the war in your soul. Exactly. Like, we're we're in it. already there. Like, that's you. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> but because of Too Close for Comfort or just coincidentally? <laughs> I think I can blame Too Close for Comfort for all of this. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, yeah. <laughs> Because I always thought that the, the quintessential 80s sitcom artist for me was Eldon. Oh, is Eldon... From Murphy Brown. Oh my God, I forgot about so Eldon. So in the first episode of Murphy Brown, Murphy, like she's like, what? invites him over to just paint the ceiling. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, well, I started. And then I started like thinking like, you know, maybe I would do a sort of allegory of the rise of, of industrialized workers. And there's a mural you never see. Wow. That Eldon... Eldon is regular on the show because he never finishes painting the upstairs and he's always doing this giant mural up there. And whenever anything about art comes up on Murphy Brown, Eldon like is a commentary on it. And so I always thought of Eldon as the 80 wow. sitcom artist, but you thought of Ted Knight. I did, yeah. Wait, what about Family Ties, Nick? Oh, Nick. oh that's right, he is an artist. Hey. Hey. A safety pin earring. Really he had a t-shirt that said fear no art. <laughs> yes. He would he made those sculptures that were like inscrutable, right? That's right. Yeah. Good call. Oh my god. And I guess good times is 70s, so we can't count JJ, right? But I completely forgot about the Murphy Brown. I, I forgot that JJ was an artist. <laughs> oh yeah, JJ, big time. 
I wonder if, because we're looking out on TV development land as we speak. Yeah. Like, looking out this window, we can see where lunch is done. And yeah. the weird thing, I don't know if you feel this in L.A. I feel like TV people, they feel about real artists. Like, you feel about a five-year-old who can, like, talk to trees. <laughs> like, on the one <laughs> hand, they're like, you're five. You don't know shit. Mm-hmm. On the other hand... You make things and there's no development process and there's no audience and there's no Nielsen ratings and you still get paid. This is an amazing scam. <laughs> you know, like they have like a weird reverence for art combined with it's completely outside of their. Yeah, I do find that. But I also find like people always wanting to help me and I'm always like. I'm fine. What what does this look like to you? Like, I'm doing just fine. Like, it all needs to be developed further because I guess it's all about development. When they say help, do they mean they'll buy a painting? No, 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 no. No, I wish. That'd be a nice help. Yeah, but no, it's more about, like, and I mean, I guess this is also just youth culture anyway now, but branding. That's what I always Uh, felt before before people, artists are taught about branding. Before those days started. Yeah, that's what I feel more. Yeah, they want to, you know, play the game. Yeah, something like, feels... <laughs> the game is tiddlywinks. Like. <laughs> no, but that's a good way to look at it. I've never heard anybody say that, but it makes total sense. Where there is kind of an awe of yeah. about it. Because they buy art. Yeah, that's they true. Do. I know. But they also just feel like, yeah, it's art. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of sort of like push you to the side, yeah. Okay, so you're in high school and you're learning about the fine arts from watching Clue Close for Comfort and from (laughs) meeting a Texas artist. Yeah. So when did you learn that you could like go to art school? Somehow I still thought art was probably more illustration. Mm -hmm. So I went to a school nearby, like I couldn't afford to go anywhere outside of the state. So I, but I did ask my teacher, did some research, found out the best art school in Texas, which is just a really tiny school. It was called East Texas State at the time. That's how I know Gary Panter because he okay. went there. So we, we all have the same drawing teacher, Gary Panter, my good friend Trent, Trenton Doyle Hancock, all were taught by this guy, Lee Baxter Davis. And he had been there since the early 70s, and he is just a standout draftsman, but really weird shit. Anyway, so I wanted to go there, but I never really imagined that it would be, I go and then I apply to shows and then I have shows And then I do that. Like, that was still not clear that that could happen, but I wanted it to happen. And then I was really scared about, what if I don't make money? I have nothing to fall back on. There were times when I I thought about being an art teacher. I remember I called my parents, because I was just an art major out there, and I called my mom and I said, you know, I don't want you guys to have to worry about me, so I'm going to go ahead and switch over to teaching. And she started to cry And I mean, my parents know nothing about art. They do now through me, but they had no way of thinking I would be okay. And I go, I was like, why are you crying? And she goes, that's not the same. I just, I don't know anything, but I know that's not the same. I think you are an art, you just should be an artist. And I feel really lucky still. The fact that my parents, even without ever really going to museums, somehow kind of knew that that's what I was supposed to do. So from then on, I had my eye on the prize and I was like, Whatever I have to do to make this happen, I'll make it happen. And I I got really kind of lucky breaks early on because it's Texas. And even though it has a pretty strong art community, but I was just always at the right place at the right time. Like I would be in a juried show where someone from New York who happens to be curating the biennial would be coming through and seeing my work. That's how that happened. Yeah. 
So I just kind of kept getting lucky in those ways the whole time I was kind of starting out, if that makes sense. And then from then on, from the time the biennial happened, I was kind of accidentally set up to just kind of continue to do this as long as I don't royally fuck up in some way or just stop making art. You know, I mean, it's been my job now for, I don't know, I'm almost 40, and that happened a long-ass time ago, whenever we were in the biennial together, which yeah, I don't 2004, re- I think. 2004. So, yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was just going to say, luck favors the prepared, so don't be so hard on yourself. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Thank you. I, and I really was. I mean, I did take it seriously, except that it wasn't in a real business way. It was just that I was dedicated to making drawings forever and ever. So what was your question? I was going to ask if you ever did it, had a day job. Oh, I did. Up until right around the time of 2004, right. I loved jobs that had nothing to do with art. So I worked at Starbucks for a long time to get health insurance because I have a lot of health problems. And then I worked as an administrative assistant just because I loved office supplies. You uh, have some interesting <laughs> office supplies. I do. I love office. They're all over the you place. Desk boxes. I'm a fucking professional. <laughs> Someone just sent that to me the other day. I was like, that's pretty good. I guess I exude professionalism, at least when it comes to how organized my office is. Yeah, so I was in charge of a commercial real estate firm's uh, <laughs> office supplies for a really long time. So you were an artist and you were an office manager for fun. And you were going to become a teacher and your mom said, go be an artist. Yeah. So you're from Bizarro. I guess so. Yeah, I really, yeah, that is a strange story, I guess. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) It doesn't really add up. Uh, By the way, also, I know this can go away at any time. I've had some really rough times in my crazy career of being able to do this. And I always just like barely make it. Like it's always like, this is all gonna go away. And then some weird shit will happen. And then I'm like, okay again. And I will find weird ways to like, oh, I also was a, like a pet portrait artist. <laughs> I did that a lot when I, when I lived in Houston. And so I always have that too, where it's like I'll drum up some weird business, like painting someone's dog or drawing someone's cat or something. It's weird, I don't know if you feel this way too, but when my drawing skills are actually useful in a bizarre way, like, I can't even believe it. Like, I think that's so, it's always <laughs> funny to me. Like, oh, you mean this dumb shit I do with this one pencil? I can actually, like, continue on? It's different from this stuff on the walls now. Does that make sense? Like, these kind of sure. commissions. I it- believe that you didn't draw someone's <laughs> dog in this style. <laughs> no, not at all. Unless they were like a 1930s communist who was deeply (laughs) depressed and wanted their dog to be depressed as well. That sounds like a challenge to me, Zach. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you want me to make next? Because I can do it. I can figure that out. Yeah, it is a weird, it was a weird start. A really weird start. And I think Texas kind of helped that be a weird start, too. The reason I got to quit the office job finally was, or I did quit it. I really didn't want to. Like, I was torn about it. Was that I got a grant. I guess it was Artadia, and it was their first year ever doing it. And I can't remember. It was a lot of money, but not that much money when you really— But in Houston, just multiply it by 1000 It was like $20,000 or something. And I remember saying out loud, I could live on this for two years. I don't do anything, I don't spend money, my clothes are Hanes.com, you know? Like, I knew that I could live off that for so long. So it was also about being prepared in that I'm gonna make this work however I can kind of mentality, you know? Okay, I believe you. Yeah, (laughs) I said it with conviction enough. 
I occasionally am hyperbolic. Well, you'll lie. Close to lie. Like, uh, just lie. I might lie. I, I do lie accidentally about really dumb things. Like, recently, someone came over here, and then I'll catch it, and I'll say, I don't know why. I just totally lied about that. Someone came over for a studio visit. Yeah. And he goes, so you live in here too, right? And I was like, no, even though I live right back there. And then I go, you know what? I don't know why I said that. I, for some reason, didn't want you to know I lived here, but I totally live right back there in that bedroom. I think there's like a deep-seated instinct like in all artists to say that just in case it's like a cop. And you, and you are in Soho in the 1970s. Like, like at all times, like, I might be in Soho in the 1970s. Like, do you know anyone gay? No! Like, it is. It's ingrained in us now, isn't it? No, 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 no. <laughs> that might be where it came from. So, yeah, sometimes I'll lie, but I'll tell you when I do, okay? Okay. So, oh, you've got health problems. Yeah. Do you have, like, one long-term thing? Yeah. Do you not want to talk about it? Oh, no, I don't mind talking about it. In fact, it's helpful for me. I have a lot of long-term things, but the one thing where I always do need health insurance, since I was in second grade when I first had to get on, I have a heart problem. So it's a weird palpitation. Like, my valve is extremely loose. It's a mitral valve prolapse, but it's... On top of that, some other weird shit where it's all, I always imagine one day, is it gonna just float off? And I never ask the cardiologist, like, go through my veins or something, this valve, because it's leaky. You can hear it. So anytime I even go for a regular checkup, yeah, like if we had a stethoscope or like you would hear it. So doctors are always like, whoa, like they are always freaked out. My mom has it too. Okay. Uh, so I have to be put on medicine for that, which, you know, it oh, just palpitated. It does it very regularly, but it's weird to do it while I'm talking about it. So that's one thing. I also have a gross one, ulcerative colitis. I'm just going to say it. Let's just say it loud and proud. Why not? You guys wanted to hear about my colon today. I know it, right? (laughs) Definitely. Reinterpreting these drawings now. (laughs) Yeah, there's probably evidence of it somewhere in there. And that's a really bad one. So that one, like, I'm all, you know, you never know if you're just going to end up in the hospital kind of thing. Right. And then I also have something, my spine is slowly trying to fuse together, and it's kind of connected to colitis. A lot of people with ulcerative colitis have it, and it's called ankylosing spondylitis. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of syllables. I know. It's an annoying one. So basically, at the very lower part of my spine, it's fusing together. Whoa. So it's a lot to take care of, but all of this does kind of relate back to why I'm so okay being, I'm not, I don't seem friendly, I am friendly, but I, you would maybe assume I would like to go socialize. I mean, not with you. I'm not saying like you're trying to get, hey, Robin, aren't we going to go socialize right now? I'm just saying, in general, doesn't it seem like I might like to talk to people outside of my studio? So what you're saying is you're really loud introvert. I am. Because you're ill. Yes, I think so. Well, and I have to stay here a lot. Like, I can't do a lot. I get tired so easily because of the medicines I'm on and all the other stuff. So, yeah, it it actually, in a weird way, as annoying as it is to have all these things, it helps me do this stuff because I kind of have to stay here anyway. And I do like it. I've grown to adjust, if that makes sense. You, in your own words, like, your work is, like, a lot about death and tragedy and bleakness. Like, do you relate that largely to the possibility that you could be very sick at any time? Or are there other experiences also that are kind of made you invest in that? I think it started to be like that as I get older. It's more a part of it. But it came from just really natural tendencies. I was so focused on 
death from the time I was little. And I was just a chipper-seeming little blonde girl. But I remember every time I would meet someone new, my first thought, I don't do this anymore, but was like, I wonder what age they're going to be when they die. Just always Ugh. thinking about death with individuals. And anytime, Do you know retrospectively if you were right? That's a good question. Yeah, no, I've been wrong. Okay. I, I'll be honest. That's I would, good. I, yeah, it's true. I was totally off. You don't want to be like the dead zone. No, God, that would be terrible. Although kind of amazing. So there's that. And also, for me, I'm not Catholic anymore, but I grew up Catholic. For me, Catholicism was about darkness and about a focusing on really dark shit all the time and death. So I think that's another part of my early kind of gravitation towards that sort of imagery. You can really see it over there. Yeah. This happens to be the most Catholic my studio's ever looked, by the way. <laughs> There's a lot of it in here, especially over there. And, and then as I get older, it is something I think. And I'm also one of these people where as many people who have died in my life both tragically and just of normal circumstances, I cannot accept it. Like, I'm just someone who's like, I cannot believe we're going to die. I just can't handle it. I'm very just consumed with it all the time. Okay. It's just who I am for whatever reason. You know what I'm going to say? I wouldn't say it's a hundred. It's really about my illnesses. I don't know why, but it's not. It's sort of a happy curiosity, whereas my father, who's in his 70s, is obsessed with death and dying, and it's very sad. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, he's not sick, by the How way. How does it come out for him? Well, my future is in the past, and mm. I guess I'll just sit here. Just like that. Oh, like, Dad, there's nothing yeah. wrong with you. So you, you seem very, yeah, I'm still about dying. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's new to me. Okay, that makes me feel better. Yeah, it is. You know, and I mean, I suffer, my whole life has su have suffered with some pretty serious depression, but at the same time, there's something in me where no matter what and how dark it gets, I genuinely laugh about something every day. Even if it's something horrible about myself that just happened, I kind of can't help but to find a, re and maybe that's what you're seeing in the work too, like I find it all real funny. Like just the fact that we're all here seems to be some weird fucked up accident anyway. And so if, if I zoom way, way out about my life and our lives, which is kind of what I try to do in my work a lot, especially when there's the figures in it, those are all little heads down there if you can't. Uh, that, that helps me a lot. And I have a tendency, it's like my knee-jerk reaction when I get real self-consumed and low, I force myself to just zoom way the fuck out. And so that's my way of dealing with it all, I think. I'm thinking of like, Catholicism and the symbols in your work, the way that they're drawn in that sort of charcoal-y way, and also like poetry, like the last time poetry was like important in America, we like 60s, pre-60s, like 1950s. It was like this era of like, I would say from like the 30s to the 50s of a semi-rural American seriousness you would see it in the book covers, it would be like all charcoal-y and it would be the sun and it would be like, like raise high the roof beam carpenters. And like, yeah. there's like a, a certain kind of vibe of that aesthetic of that era where it was very elegiac about the end of rural civilization. But there was also like, there was a lot about religion. It was like writing about these people whose religion was really important in their lives in a way that it wasn't in the cities at that time. And it was like, 
the last thing before modernism, yeah. before like before American modernism started looking like European. It was just like this sort of last gasp before jazz and rock and roll and all of yeah. it. It seems like there's like that kind of like imagery or like that feeling is in your work. That texture. makes sense. And do you think, I can see it especially right now with this work. And I think it has something to do with a similar, even though it comes from a different place, but kind of a similar mood, which is about anticipating the end of something. And I think this has a lot of anticipatory qualities to it, or at least I hope. What I hope a lot of this work in here looks like. It's like a wave about to break. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then all of these kind of landscapes, are they completely crumbling or are they finally coming together? I kind of want a lot of these to read, and I don't know that all of them do yet, but, and this is all kind of new work for me, but as something that you can't tell if it's all over now and, and humanity's gone, or if this whole, this is a whole new thing. Like, look at that like half black hole thing up yeah. there. That is one that I just finished last night. A lot of these are so new that I don't even know how to read them right now. And I love that. And I actually love having people in here when I am feeling this sort of unease, which I really like because Speaking of the older work, I could have kept making those other drawings forever and ever in a day, and it would be fine, and I know exactly how to make them, and I know how to solve them. If I want them to be more beautiful or more ugly or more scary or more funny, this stuff, I don't quite know how to do it yet, and I love that feeling after so many yeah. years of doing that. Let's talk about making something ugly on purpose. Yeah, okay. You want me to just talk Why about it? Why would you do that? <laughs> Probably not ugly, but, well... No, you know how in the 80s there were some artists and it was called, you know, like bad painting. I mean, I sure. really love that kind of ugly. You mean messy? Or no. You mean like you don't want to look Unskilled? Ugly? What are we talking about? I mean really uncomfortable compositionally and where things are really off and not rounded out and elegant. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, because I think of that in two ways. Okay. Like, one way is... It simply doesn't fit a number of traditional ideas of what's attractive. And the other one is it's like not attractive and you don't want to look at it. Right. Okay. So which one are you talking about? I think the what I would love to do and what I have done, and trust me, they exist in that flat file, is you don't want to look at it. That kind of thing. Okay. Now my take on you don't want to look at it is like 99% of the world I don't want to look at. Uh, like, look, a bunch of crappy Spanish roofs out the window. Like, I don't want to look at them. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm like, I don't need more. Okay. Don't want to look at it. But this is something that you probably don't categorize the world the same way, or you wouldn't have tried to do it because it wouldn't have seemed hard. Okay, so, I see what you mean. Okay, yeah, for me, I guess I mean I gravitate towards romanticism, it, not in poetry, but in visual art, especially German romanticism. And to me, that is so kind of perfect in my way of seeing visuals. So to me, what I was talking about when I purposely make things ugly, it is like go the opposite of that, where there's nothing sort of ethereal and nothing compositionally beautiful and stable, but within the world of landscape. For me, that's my constant, is always a horizon line. Now that I say that, I want to see, is there a horizon line in everything? Yeah. So far, yeah. Except for, except. That one kind of just has a bunch of buildings which create a horizon. Yeah, I'll call that a horizon, though. Okay, so that's what I didn't say. I'm glad you're asking, because I think what I mean is, in the realm of something really traditional, like landscapes, that's what I'm talking about. Like, how to make a really ugly landscape. And I'm not saying any of these right here are, but I've attempted it, and I've succeeded. And I will 
take photos and send them to me. And you feel like that was hard. No, you know what would be hard for me is to own them and to say that I still think they're good and to put them on a wall. So it was an exercise to make them, but you're not sure you would show them. I don't know if I would. Yeah, no, I purposefully have kept them hidden. So there's something to that. That's interesting. I know. Well, because I don't know why I would do that to be. I mean, they really are not good drawings. Like, they're straight up not good at all. But I like them. Wait, you like that you did them or do you like looking at them? Mm, I like looking at them. So why wouldn't you not show them? First of all, I haven't had a whole lot of shows lately and they're kind of new. So maybe I will. I've got stuff on the walls though. (laughs) That's giving a hard time. I like it. I need to be given a hard time. No, I mean, I think you're right. Okay, do you think this one's pretty ugly? Let's just be honest. Brown is my least favorite color. My good friend Anne always says that. She's like, you fucking love a brown for some reason. She hates brown. I would never wear brown, but yeah, I know. Brown's terrible, right? Uh, this is a pretty bad drawing. I gotta tell, don't, let's just agree, Zach. Okay, fine, we'll agree. I love it. Do you love it because it represents that you managed to make something that goes, so. I love how dumb it looks. It looks so dumb to me. It looks like I don't have a clue what I'm doing, yet it's still a landscape and it looks really sad. It looks like somebody tried really hard. So somehow it expresses that Robin O'Neill feeling of like a sad landscape yet while still having very little in the way of other aesthetic appeal. Yeah, I think so. That's interesting. And would you show it? Yes, I would show this. You know what? It has an element of being slightly pathetic. Right. Maybe that's what I also meant. When I'm thinking ugly, I'm thinking visually like pathetic and sad, almost like if sad were an adjective in drawing, this has that. Like, I get that it's sort of somber. Here, should we show John? Yeah, let's definitely let's show, show you John so that. Let me say, let me say. I want John to just say, yeah, that sucks. I think that would be great if he did. He's not gonna. What do you think, John? Be honest. I can't see it as clear as you guys can because I'm, I'm not in the room, but it looks interesting. Oh, okay. So not terrible. I mean, it, it could be bad in a good way, the way, like, the drawings of Debuffet are bad in a good way. I, I don't know. I have a different relationship to good, I guess. Like, the way I think of the good and bad. Really? If Let's I want to look at it, it's good. If I don't, oh. it's bad. Oh, well, I like that. I respect that. That's as brass tacks as possible. I mean, we all feel that way. But I want to describe this for the people who are not yeah. on the radio because we probably won't have a JPEG of it online. No, that's true. So along the bottom, there's this thin strip of brown, which kind of is like almost like a coyote and roadrunner jagged. It's almost a flat strip, yeah. but it has like one jag in it, you know, yep. so it might be like out in the Midwest or something. Mm-hmm. And that's just brown crayon, right? Yeah. And then the top, which is like 90% of the drawing, which would be the sky if it's a landscape, is just a sort of scumbly charcoal, like a big side of a sheep that's really dirty next to you. And then there is a like thin charcoal line down the middle, and that's the whole thing, right? <laughs> that's it. And it does look sad. It does? And that's the achievement. Right? Okay, it's like, yeah. like if you can snatch expressionistic victory from formalistic defeat. <laughs> that's that, it. Right? Yes, you're naming it for me. Thank you. Okay, I want to also be clear. I made this about 40 minutes before you folks came over okay. today. Because you were like, I have to be on a pod. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I wanted to have this conversation, clearly. Yeah, great description of it. And also, let's just say one of the reasons I'm also having this conversation, I think, and wanting to, 
is because for me, what you're seeing is the first time also in my studio where, I mean, you see this drawing's gonna take me another three months to make. This is another drawing I'm talking about. Yeah, this listeners. one has like a bunch of imagery that's very specific. There's like little birds and little heads everywhere and X, like there's symbol, like lots of things, like rendered things. Rendered, that yeah, that take a long time, all with my little mechanical pencil, tedious, right. detailed, that kind of stuff. I still wanna make those drawings. I wasn't so sure for a long time. But right now, for the first time, I'm accepting that I like more, I mean, for me, this is raw, right? Sure, raw, yeah. and then also rendered, and that they can live in the same space. And I don't know how that's reading to you here, but oh, I'm yeah. really happy that they're living together in the same world. For me, that's also a new achievement, and something that, I'm not sitting here being the most ballsy artist in the world. For me, within my world and the way I make work, this is more ballsy to put something as kind of, I'm just gonna call it shitty, my new drawing from 40 minutes before you came. It's kind of a shitty drawing, yet I wanna look at it. So yeah, that's how I judge things in my studio too. If I saw that and I didn't make it and just imagine it in some gallery, would I be drawn to it? And honestly, I'd be more drawn to this thing than I would most of the other shit in my studio right now. So there's something to well, the, that. The ones that are less rendered kind of remind me of like Forest Bess or something. Mm -hmm. And there's like a deliberate abandonment of like a thing that needs to get rendered in a way to render it. It's just symbolic in a certain way. But the easiest thing to say would be like, you're trying to stretch different muscles to be, create a range. But you're also trying to like, create a space where the very technical work and the stuff that's like more symbolic are the same kind of work. I am. Technically, I'm trying to utilize my different hands is how I think about it. Like, how can I render and it be hazy? And then how can I render and it be in focus and all of that and somehow make them work as together? As long as it's outside and sad. <laughs> yeah, there's no interiors, <laughs> are there? Yeah, I guess outside and sad. I guess that's one way to sum it up. Oh, every, every once in a while people think they see an interior coming into being in here, and I'm always like, I hate to disappoint it, but I just don't see it ever happening. But I like that as a, if someone were to say, hey, why don't you try that, try making an interior, that would be super challenging for me, actually. Also, you are looking out at a dramatic landscape. Like, oh, yeah. your window is right in front of the Hollywood Hills, which create a, like a 50% line yeah. Yeah, um, it is exactly 50%. Hold that. Um, see if John can see it. Oh, wow. Half of it is the hills and half of it is the sky right out there. But there's buildings, which you will have none of. No, but those, see that middle piece yeah, there? Yeah, that looks kind of like Angkor Wat or something. Oh, it yeah. does, yeah. Or like something like Teotihuacan, like ancient. And I've been Angkor. doing a lot of reading of early Mayan poetry yeah. and then thinking about Mayan and Aztec what architecture. What is early Mayan poetry like? Is yeah, it just wow. like people dying? No, it's all very creation. <laughs> it's like, a, well, the Popol Vuh is, oh, okay, right. is the earliest and that's the beginning of all of it. So it's all a lot of really trippy, crazy imagery of thunder, lightning. It's a lot of what you're seeing here and like weird landscapes colliding, kind of like pre-earthquake sounding language. But there are these four guys that were their idea of who the first four men on earth were. And one of them's name, they were like called like thunder sun and lightning, whatever. And then the other one's name was not right now. <laughs> most amazing thing you ever, wow. for me, I almost threw my fucking book out this window when I read that. I was like, you win, this is the greatest thing ever written, so done, done. I don't need to read anymore. 
So anyway, that got me going, and I'm kind of trying to do some sort of weird creation myth of my own in here by reading a lot of that early stuff. All anonymous, all anonymous poetry from that time period. But I'm glad you pointed out the windows, Zach, because if you look at that one that looks kind of like Aztec architecture, okay. maybe, at, at dusk every day, and I'm a big, I used to be a volunteer weather watcher, like I'm obsessed with weather, but we don't have it here, so yeah. I just casually watch the sky all day, of course, and... At dusk every day, that horizon line is lit up. It glows around the edge of it every single day, like a brighter, brighter white or whatever color the sky happens to be, just like that. And that's where all these weird highlights on the horizon are coming from, uh, although I didn't realize that at first. A pale line between the earth and sky. Yep. Like a, a glowing line. A glowing line on all these horizons. And I realized like the ones that don't have that are the ones that are bothering me. So that's a new kind of trope or something that I need to get on board with on all of these. It needs to go if it hasn't got the glow. There you go. <laughs> you're good. Just make that up. That's pretty good. Oh, yeah, you're quick. <laughs> Zach, I need you around here more often. You're yeah, solving yeah. all the problems. Really good poetry right there. Real, real problem solver. <laughs> okay, so you got curated out of Texas into the Whitney Way, but then that was 12 years ago. Yeah. So... Were there events during your art career, or they, it was it all just smooth sailing? They were like, we want more of these like big vortexes with skulls in them. <laughs> it was really, and I wonder if it's the same for you. After the biennial, it was kind of insane, and it was hard to keep up with. And I never anticipated that happening. Again, like here, I'm just kind of casually quitting my office job. But then the demand was high. I never could catch up with it, and that hurt me a lot. Like there, I think that... It wasn't clear to my gallery in New York at the time how long these took, especially those back then. Because I only did they take? Because they were being very large ones. The yeah. ones that were in your studio now are like they look like you could, you know, like a less than thirty by forty. They're twenty by something. Yep. But those were huge wall drawings. Yeah, the majority of what I made until about three years ago, those big ones take anywhere from like nine months to three years just to make one of them. So. Wow. But I mean, at the same time, in the early days, I was making about this size, like 30 by 40. Yeah, yeah. And But those were really rendered and only with mechanical pencil. Mm -hmm. And those would take, you know, oftentimes a month just to make one of them. Yeah. Sometimes more than that. So I just couldn't meet the demands. And that did hurt me a little bit. But I mean, I don't really care. There was nothing I could do. I couldn't rush them any further than I was already rushing yeah, them. I mean, I guess the traditional thing that people were doing is that they would just hire an assistant to do. That's you know, true. Like some people who I will not name nor interview on this podcast. Ooh, um, <laughs> I love it. That's but, right. Yeah, and that's <laughs> what I didn't want to do. Yeah. I, like, that was never going to happen. These were going to be mine. I do it in this very kind of right. specific way. So, I mean, but it was pretty much smooth Say, I mean, I, I showed New York, Dallas, Chicago always because I went to one year of grad school and then dropped out there. And then I got a Paris gallery who then got a, you know, Berlin gallery. So I feel like it was all, I got smarter about not scheduling my shows so close. So I just got to know myself better. Yeah, because I would always, <laughs> you still haven't, <laughs> it's hard, right? So I had moved from Texas to here. I first lived in the Valley. And during that move, I had already been working on my biggest drawing to date, which was called Hell. And it was Hell to Make. It was a big, huge triptych. And just insane. In the end, and then I, while I moved, I finished it up. My husband and I picked out our home based on the second bedroom being big enough to handle this drawing and to be get it through the doors and all this. Like, my whole life revolved wow. around this drawing. It was insane. 
And I got really isolated on purpose because I was working like 18 hour days on this drawing for the last like eight or nine months of it without even going out to the mailbox kind of thing. Like, and I gained tons of weight because I was just sitting in my studio working. And this drawing had like, I think it ended up having 65,000 miniature figures on it. 35,000 of them were collaged on, like cut out. I can show you the little mini scissors. It was the most insane drawing. And it went up in my gallery in New York. And really, I thought this was going to be like a big deal. I thought people might care about it. But really, beside my gallerist, who was always into it, really nobody. It's like, that's a really big drawing. It, yeah, nice. It's not a plexiglass sculpture <laughs> of something I already have in my house, which is really what I want to see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, didn't do anything for anybody. And that was hard. Shame on me for giving a shit what people cared about, you know? But I couldn't, I guess I couldn't help it at that point after that long. So if you spend that much time working on a piece, then you didn't spend a bunch of other time paying rent some other way. Yeah. So I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. I know. People who have kids are always like, I mean, that's longer than uh, my baby was inside me, that kind of thing. It really is three years and I'm this close to it. And it was horrific. Like, it has really insane themes to it. Like, I even, I don't think I've ever talked about this, really. But I I don't know why I wanted to do this. But it was hell, and it was my way of closing out this series of all of the sweatsuit men that I had. And so I interviewed everybody who I loved. I just decided on a, I guess I had a list of, like, 20 people I care about deeply. And I said, is there anyone you hate and if so, I'm going to put them in this drawing for you and Is torture the them. One? Yeah, that's it. Okay, so it's kind of based on the Bruegel image, right? A little kind of bit. Like, a like lot it has of has that a similar. Yeah, it does. See, online, it just looks like a drawing, but it's so big that all these little things are things. Yeah, like this middle panel here, this tower that you see in the center. That's about 20,000 miniature robed figures. Like they're all crawling on each other's back to yeah, get out of hell. Yeah, it just looks like a continuous gray. I know, you can yeah. kind of, yeah. Gonna, oh yeah, that you can kind of see what's happening. Yeah, you have the same problem I have where it looks like a picture online and you're like, no, but zoom in. Like, ah, <laughs> no. Fuck. Right? Okay. I know you're one of the few people I can talk to about that, how aggravating that is. And these are the type of pieces that need to be seen in real life. And yeah. when they're not, I was frankly, getting way too precious about my work. When you make work and you get this obsessed with detail, I really was losing my mind a little bit. And so it's better that I have decided to live for things other than just making one drawing for three years. But that was my entire life revolved around this stuff forever. Wow. So I think that I'm a better human being, um, just, and I'm better to myself. A lot of people probably would be like, no, no, girl, look at this shitty drawing. You're not a better artist. But I think I'm a better artist than I was when I was so addicted to just working nonstop. I never worked with color for this whole time I've been working as an artist. And then it encouraged me to try oil pastels. Those maybe weren't the best drawings either, but it taught me something about just basically ways to utilize my hand in different ways, like we were talking about earlier. But I mean, in school, were you like asked to do a wide variety of things or was like you drawing, go draw? No, I was asked to, I did everything. Like okay. I did it all. And, and like, I, I don't want to. Uh, no, I lo- always loved painting. In fact, in undergraduate school, when we had to work with pencils, I was just like so over it. I fucking hated it. I was like, oh my God, how boring. I went into grad school making large, colorful, abstract, but sometimes it would have some figurative elements. 
I made the complete opposite work when I went into grad school. So what happened? Like when when did you go down to just like these black and white large drawings? Yeah, it happened very quickly. It was you know how most artists have like a a side area where, especially young artists, where they kind of are testing things out and they don't think they're as good. They have like the mess around. Zone. Yeah, there's yeah, the sure. mess around area. I had that. And I always had it. And it was always usually black and white drawings of some sort, usually pen and ink, though, at that time. One of the professors, I went to University of Illinois, Chicago, and that's a very theory-heavy school and a great school. But people who were actually makers and picked up paintbrushes and stuff were kind of, like, made fun of by a lot of the other students and stuff. And I thought that was fine. That didn't bother me. Anyway, this one... The mockery didn't bother you. No, I kind of liked it. It encouraged me. It turned me into more of a smartass, actually, for whatever reason about what I was making. But this one professor just said, hey, so tell me about these small black and white pieces. And I was kind of embarrassed. I was like, I don't know what those are. I just do them all the time. And she goes, so I'm going to be honest with you. They're a million times better than your paintings. I dare you to take all the paintings down and to not work with a paintbrush for the next two weeks, only work with a pencil for a while. And for whatever reason, immediately that sounded like a smart idea, and I did it, and I absolutely have never looked back. So somehow her encouragement just changed it all for me. Or discouragement, depending Discouragement, on how you look at it. yeah. <laughs> and I also liked, because I kind of knew my paintings were looking ridiculous, like I didn't like them anymore. Something about it wasn't vibing right with me at all. Because they were so goofy, by the way. And I knew that I wasn't just a goofy artist. Like, they were just ridiculous. Yeah, I just loved it. So th that's when it changed. I think they're always hoping that that will be the reaction to what they say. Yeah, you're right. Like, what if this was aqua? And then you're like, nah, I'm not going to do that. One in a hundred. They're like, what if you just did black and white drawings? You're like, I'm doing them for the rest of my life. I'm going to do one that takes three years and destroys my life. Like... Yeah, like, you're a great teacher. <laughs> I know. I always wonder. She's the one person who I never see when I go back to Chicago. And I don't know if she knows how far I've taken that suggestion, you know. But I, I need to write her a note. In fact, I'm going to write myself a note to do it. I'm going to find her and write her. Like, you cha she totally changed my life, you know? It's, yeah, it looks like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, look at this. I've got proof everywhere. Yeah, so that's what happened. And then I was really comfortable. The other reason that uh, worked out for me was because... That was a time when, in East Texas, where I was uh, in undergrad school, there was nothing to do. There, I think there was a McDonald's and a Subway and a bar, and I was too young to go to the bar anyway, and there was nothing else, and I loved it. Like, I thrive well in that kind of environment. And then I got to Chicago, and I liked a lot of the people there, but that was the first time I started to really feel pressure about, like, going out and hanging out a lot. And I just knew that I didn't want to, even though I liked everyone there. And it was this weird moment of realization that I also didn't even want to be in the studio environment at the university. So the other reason it worked for me is that I truly liked making a minimal existence for myself as an artist, which was this one mechanical pencil, this smudge stump that my mom gave me in seventh grade. This is the same one I've always had. And that's all I used forever. And I could do that on my little <laughs> shitty card table that you see I still have, just in my apartment by myself watching cops all night and day, you Wait, know? This smart. is another one, and it is almost as old. This is from high school, but this is my key. It's precious. See how precious I am? Important smudge stumps. It's not even an office supply. I know. Yeah, what are these actually called? You probably I don't know. I've never used one. You I haven't? just use a pen. They look like they would make a mess. 
Oh yeah, well that's, I have a layer of glassine on it, so I clean it up. But yeah, no, this is a huge reason. This lay, this many years of a patina of graphite on this, you see that just became one of my drawings in one second. I know. And when I talk to younger artists, I think that I can say both of these things and eat and mean them equally, where I think artists need to really work with their temperaments. Like you need to know your temperament and what, how you like to live your life. And you, your work needs to kind of go in sync with that or you're not going to make any work. Yeah. But that can get a little too comfortable too. For instance, my hell drawing three years, I took that a little too far. I'm an yeah. extremist. And so I went real overboard. It took that extreme for me to realize like, okay, let's pull back a little bit. And right now I'm in a good place where... I see people from my studio. You see them out the window. <laughs> yeah, I see them from six them. floors up. That works for me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, okay. No, no, I occasionally. I feel the same way about the landscape. You do? Yeah. Yeah. I, I see the landscape. I don't need to be. Out the, I don't need to be. You don't go hike in, in it? it? No. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> no, but I say that all the time because people are like, oh, you must really love nature. I'm like, yeah, I like it how I am liking it right now, looking at I it like, from the indoors with my TV also. I like to know it's full of death. Yeah, we already know that. We don't need to go experience it all the time. I always feel very, especially in Los Angeles, people, I, I don't love admitting it, even though it's true, because they're like, oh, you don't go hiking or go anywhere? No. <laughs> I walk around this neighborhood. <laughs> now, so, somewhere in all this story, you studied with uh, Werner Herzog? Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. Talk yes. Talk about oh. this. <laughs> that was so great. So when I was still in Houston, Texas... The only person I got Google alerts for was Werner Herzog. Like I wanted as, because he's always been my favorite Sounds person. Sounds good to me. Yeah. And so <laughs> I remember it, it was announced that he was doing something called Rogue Film School, which was like five days of studying with Werner Herzog. that was like five years ago. Yeah, yeah. Because if you remember the list of things you were going to learn were things like, which we did learn, how to pick locks, how to uh, break through a police barricade. That's the shit he wanted us to learn. And, and there was no audio equipment allowed. Okay, I have one thing. Picking locks is not a useful skill if you're actually trying to get through a lock in a criminal situation. So is it more like, here's something you could do for 20 minutes that's fun? Or is it more like, yes, this is, this is the way that I circumvent locks. People bring lock clippers and I say, go away. I will do it with my hands. Like, <laughs> it was a little more of a demonstration for fun to show us exactly that. Like the example of don't let anything stop you. Here's what hasn't stopped me. I go through police barricades and I will pick a lock if I have to get somewhere to film. It was that kind of renegade rogue thing. You're right. It's not that useful probably, but uh, it was fun. And then he would bring people like, you know, Lawrence Krauss, uh, the scientist. He brought him in for some unknown reason just to talk to us for a while. But long story short, yeah, so I found out about it. And you had to be a filmmaker. That was the only thing. And I'm like, I've never made a film. And I thought about, like, filming something really quick and just trying to get in. But then I just decided I'm just going to send a PowerPoint presentation of my drawings, like 20 drawings. I was contemplating it for weeks, and then finally the deadline was the next day, and I was like, fuck it, I'm FedExing overnight this shit. Oh, and suck. somehow I know it was suck. really great. Like that kid in class, and they're like, well, we need a 300-page like, like research essay, and you're like, well, I just wrote a poem, and you get an A. <laughs> Uh, uh. I did kind of feel like that kid in this moment. It was the greatest thing ever. How, big, how many people were in the class? like 25 that's it from all over the world too and everyone was a filmmaker except me because i guess i was the only one who just went ahead and applied 
And we really were just in Koreatown here in Los Angeles in a hotel ballroom, but it was the size of this room. Just hang out with him every day and he would go to lunch with everyone. It was unreal. And my, my How no did he order lunch? Because in my mind, he's like, <laughs> I have ideas about noodles and they cannot be too fat. But if they are thick, they sicken me as well. Like, I wish I could say he did, but no, it was real easy going. Just like take whatever, okay. no special, no special <laughs> items. It was just ordering normal things. But we would go to the same restaurant. We would just gravitate wherever he wanted to go. Okay. And then he had us walk from Koreatown to the Museum of Jurassic Technology, which That's is a, a long, long fucking walk. Yeah, he, that was a day off. But he was like, "You will walk in LA. I share a car with Billy. Almost never get in my car." So, and everyone thinks I'm crazy, but I, that's because my first time in LA was with Werner Herzog encouraging us to walk everywhere. He's like, you know, you can still walk here. And you know, he's written that book, Walking on Ice, about walking from like, I can't even remember, really far in Europe from somewhere to somewhere else. Uh, so he's a big walker. I'm a big walker too. So that worked out. But anyway, that's how it happened. And that's how I fell in love with Los Angeles is I had this magical experience. And I loved it anyway. Like there was something weird about Los Angeles the second I got out of LAX and I had a rental car and I went up the 405 and it's insane and it's a Friday night. You can't move, but I, there was something weird that happened to me, which I feel nowhere. I never thought I would find a home, like I would like a city enough to love it as much as I do, but it was like a city version of love at first sight for me. Well, there's a phenomenon in Los Angeles, especially coming from the airport, which I don't think is true in any other city, where you have a constant reminders of the horizon, despite being in a full service city. Like That's maybe, so true. I can't think of another Like place. in San Francisco, it starts going up and down. Yeah. And in New York, it's really flat. And then buildings start and you're surrounded. Yeah. And then there's bridges and shit. Whereas in LA, for a very long time, it's like a line of palm trees as you get away, and then like wherever you are, you can see. Yeah, you do always see it. It is a good intro coming from the airport. I mean, I think other people can see that and just see masses of humanity and palm trees and that's it, and just cars. And But I wasn't seeing that. I always look to the sky and you see those palm trees popping up. It's very bizarre. It's still a very bizarre landscape to me in a way that I love. Yeah, so that's what brought me here. And then I was in touch with him for a while. And one time I made him hummus and we went to um, Sinespia, the out that's where people watch movies here in LA outdoors at the cemetery. And I got to go with him. He was introducing some movie and now I forget what he was introducing. But I got to sit on his, on his like picnic blanket and everything. So <laughs> I had a really, and we I were- I have chosen this plaid. <laughs> Because <laughs> there was reasons there. There are rectangles within <laughs> rectangles. <laughs> oh, and then he told me what he wanted me to do. Uh, I remember this too. He really wanted me to make an opera about my sweatsuit men. And for a long time, I was, and it just blew my mind to even imagine that. I really legitimately wanted to, but. Then I started to go to the opera and try to figure it out. And I was like, I don't know how. And I did see William Kentridge's The Nose at the Met in yeah. New York, which was absolutely crazy. I, I'll never forget it. It was like the greatest nightmare of my life or something. But I don't know anything about how to do it. I, I kind of finally, after a couple of years of fantasizing about it and even writing a script that hopefully could get turned into something, I was like, what am I doing? I, I don't know enough about this. I, I can't even, you know, play a piano. What do I know about an opera? Shut down Werner Herzog, though. 
I know. (laughs) (laughs) So that was, I'm glad you asked me. I never get to talk about that. It was this dream week of my life being with him. And it was crazy. I saw that and I was so like, I have to, and I was like, wow. I'm sad you didn't it's do like, it. All I have is videos of Mandy jerking off. Like, I just like, what are you, like, how are you? Gonna... You so would have been in on that too. Oh God, I know. I was the little prick that just decided to apply anyway though. <laughs> he does it occasionally still, by the way. I'll put my Google alert back on for well, you specifically. <laughs> You're also on Howard Stern, which you just like say, because it comes up in your Google alerts right away. I know. So does it? Is it number yeah. one? Yeah, I was wondering. Well, it's near the top. <laughs> what happened on Howard Stern? Um, well, I was a long-term Stern listener from the time I was like in sixth or seventh grade. Because everyone who does drawings <laughs> like this sits at a fucking desk listening exactly. to podcasts and radio shows it's all true. day. We all love listening to people talk, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the best way. they listen to all your music and they listen <laughs> yeah. to all your music again and then you're like, I'm going to go crazy. And then when you're tired I mean, of your music. Yeah. It's like, absolutely true. And so during the time that I was on the Stern Show was in the early days of him being on Sirius and I love listening to things that, like, that are a marathon that just keep me seated at the same spot for a long time. And right. so, it would air and start at like 6 or something a.m., my time, and then I would listen to the full four-hour show. Then there was the after show, and I got even more obsessed. Even though I've always been listening, I know every whack packer, I know all the side characters. I am kind of a stern expert, at least I was at that time. I'd even handwritten letters. I'm a big like mail writer. I write real mail to people when I love them. So I'd written ever since I was in high school to the Stern Show, just giving my opinions about things or backing up people I think they made fun of too much or whatever. And so that's what happened was that there's a guy, Benji Bronk, who's one of the head writers for the show. And he's always been on. And he's like a chubby guy. And they always say he's unattractive. But to me, I thought he was, I've always thought he was extremely attractive. And so I kept writing. Every time they would have a day where they would nonstop talk about how fat he was or whatever, I would always send a quick email to the show being like, fuck you, Benji is hot, he's got beautiful eyes. <laughs> I would just say whatever I liked about him. <laughs> and then eventually they just looked me up and saw that I was an artist. And for whatever reason, they're like, you want to come on and then like see if you and Benji have a connection or something like that. But I also really loved Artie Lang and he was still on the show. So I was like, I'm up for meeting any of these guys. Yes, please. So I just got on the show through that kind of way. And that's it. And I was supposed to be on for like a five minute segment to see what Benji thought of me. And Howard kept me on for like 20, 25 minutes. And I didn't get made fun. Like I was willing to just get completely, relentlessly made fun of in any way, like physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever yeah. they were going to do. I know. How, yeah, I know. I was a little scared, but I was also really ballsy and just walked in. No one was with me. I was by myself. I didn't even have a friend around. And it went really well. And I mean, I was haunted by it for a long time because I don't know why. Like the, the Texas art art scene always thought that I was doing some gimmick or something when really I was just a fan who wanted to meet everybody, which is what I got to do. And they did show my artwork. Oh, and I thought they were just gonna say my name Robin, just my first name. But at the very end, Howard just said, okay, this is Robin O'Neill. She's a famous artist. We love her work and she loves Benji. We don't know why. And, that, and just when he said, and by the way, I don't think I'm a famous artist, but to them, I was a famous artist. <laughs> and then I got to the green room and within like a half hour, I had like 
30 texts from people. No, that's always what it is. And they're like, is this your art? And you're like, no, I just did a thing. I, <laughs> I had to say that so many different ways. And no matter what, people are like, no, so this is your new thing? You're a performance a George artist? Plimpton kind of, no, I just... <laughs> I just liked just it. Just do other shit besides sit and <laughs> listen to you people talk about antiques. Like, it, Thank you. Yeah, it had nothing to do with it, my art practice. Just a brief aside for like the eight other people that can relate. Thank like, you. Oh my God, I wish do. I had known you back then. I needed you to commiserate with me because it drove me fucking insane. I think art people act like if you have a fine art career and it pays the bills, you could not possibly ever seek any greater activity or entertainment than that. <laughs> you know, yeah. like that's the that's best, it. right? Like what could be better than standing in a room, holding a drink, waiting to go home? Like if you do anything else, they're like, is this your new thing now? It's like, no, I'm just a person and I do other things besides. No, yeah, I I'm like, do I need to quote Whitman every time and talk about multitudes and that, yeah, I contradict myself. Yeah, I make somber drawings. And I fucking love the Stern Show. And I love it when it gets as gross as possible. And that's totally who I am. Get over it. But I mean, I got, people were so cruel online. And I really pulled back. Because and, they were trying to describe it as a publicity stunt. Yeah. And that fucks with your business. Totally. I mean, I'm just like, this has nothing to do. And it was naive of me that I never saw that coming. I just thought, who the fuck's gonna care? It is weird that people went there. Yeah. Because your work's not performance. Right. It's not even video. It's not time-based. And it is just like black and white drawings that they thought that. But I think it probably, being a woman probably didn't help. Yeah. No, You know, they were like, yeah. I mean, I've seen it with like lots of different kinds of people where they're like, anything you do in public. It's like one time people want to do things with you in public because it's like that much more interesting. Right. But if you do it, they're like, oh, you're just trying to, oh, you, you went to the zoo to help your career. You're like, no, and someone was like, what if we film you at the zoo? It's like, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, obviously you must get it way worse than me in all sorts of ways. I feel like if you did go on the Stern show to help your career, right. it was the dumbest move ever. <laughs> and so I think that probably like making that leap yeah. would be stupid for the people making it. If you made it, it would seem dumb. <laughs> Whereas like I was actually making paintings and drawings of pornographic film people and when I'm in porn. And so... If somebody said, oh, you're just doing this for your career, they'd be like, hey, good job. You know right. what I mean? Like, yeah, there's like, a connection. Like, like at least it, right. the Stern show just seems like a real bad miscalculation <laughs> yeah. with the sort of dark, somber, weird Catholic death landscape. Like, <laughs> yeah, wow, you fucked up. You yeah, know? I really didn't understand oh, the right way to promote myself. And yeah. actually, speaking of that, that was my favorite part of being on there is Howard Stern they flashed an image up of this dead owl that I drew. And it's a huge drawing, and it's about my grandmother, who I was talking about earlier, dying. And he was asking how much money I got. In his eyes, it was a lot of money oh, yeah. for a fucking pencil drawing, right? Yeah. And then he made a joke about it, and he was, like, talking to Robin, Robin Quivers. He goes, Robin, go shoot me an owl. I'm going to make me some more money. <laughs> I mean, to be able to have Howard Stern make a cra like a joke like that about my dead grandmother— is why I stay alive. Like that's the kind of shit that I love about life. And so it all worked in my favor if people understood that artists aren't just one thing. So that was it, is that people were just thrown off. I'm embarrassed that I cared for so long and I really hid away from any social media for a long time because of it. And then I just attracted some strange characters, obviously. Anyone going on a Stern show is going to, but I knew I had to anticipate that as well. So I'm fine with it now. 
But I was kind of sad, like, last summer it finally made its way onto YouTube because it was also a video. Mm. And I was a little upset about that because then it just re-emerged. Just see all the comments. Yeah, and I just, <laughs> I know to not look now. <laughs> thing about fine art is it is so far removed from the world of social, like, that anyone cares about that you get a pass for almost anything because nobody gives a shit except for Ashley Bickerton's Facebook. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> like, yeah. no one discusses anything in the art world, really, except it's like, it'll be one thing, like, oh, Eli Broad or whatever. But yeah. it's like, the rest is just like freebies in yeah. a weird sense, and yet there's still money for it. But if it's like TV or radio or music, or you cross over with something where the money comes from how many people buy it rather than one person paying a lot of money for it, then suddenly it's like this whole world of like, everyone has an opinion, <laughs> yeah. people care. You know, I go back and forth. Cause sometimes I'm like, it would be nice if like people gave a shit about things in art. Cause even art people, like they don't seem to take it very seriously. They're yeah. like, yeah, I did a painting of like Donald Trump on skis, masturbating onto a rocket. And everyone's just like, that's a drawing. It's like, all right. Whereas if you did that in any other context, everyone would be like, wow, you're And the one hand, it's nice not to deal with that. Yeah. Cause I'm glad I don't wanna have my business dealing with like everything you're doing micromanaged. On the other hand, it does remind you like nothing you do matters. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. So I'm 100% glad that nothing I do matters, but I feel a weird, I feel it's creeping in. I feel like popular culture is embracing visual artists more and more every day. Like when I saw Kusama had painted George Clooney or something like that. Mm -hmm. I get a little worried, like all of that inclusion, even though I need to let it go, because I really relish that idea that I can do whatever the fuck I want and no one's gonna care ever. I mean, yeah, it is a little sad, I understand that, but I love living in a world like that. Yeah. So I don't know. Don't you think that that, I don't think it's going to be this way forever. It's double-edged. On the one hand, it's like, you know, you really are doing something that for all the thinking and worrying you do, you will make no impact on anyone. On the other hand, it's like, <laughs> good. You know, I like I, the way you said it so plainly. You will make no impact on anyone. <laughs> I, I get a little sad whenever, you know, I, I follow Obama on Instagram and there's always people visiting Obama and there's never any visual artists that get to go visit him. I know visual artists who got to visit Obama. Oh, you do? I know one. <laughs> who? One. <laughs> yeah, it's the always musicians. The basketball team visits him. Whoever won gets to visit him. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Do you really know someone yes. who did that? Uh, who? Carolyn Gehrig, who is a photographer and she has EDS like Mandy. She did a hashtag on Twitter called Hospital Glam, which was her photos to start with, but then other people join in, which is like photos of people, like almost all women in the hospital. It's like a self-assertion. Yeah. I don't want to describe it because she's better at describing it. But it's like, it's about like the overlap of fashion and selfies and disability activism. And it's like about like self-assertion in the hospital space, which is like important. And she got to go to the White House and she's awesome. But it's also true that she got to go to the White House because of the social impact, largely, of her art, rather than the art qua. But yeah, I know what you mean, John. <laughs> and that is great that that happened, and I'm glad you just told me that whole, I mean, I need to look into that anyway. Carolyn's cool. Yeah, but I do get sad too, like no one cares about art for art's sake. Like in that realm of almost everything, it's not even politically, it's just in general. 
It gets me upset all the time. I remember recently, I don't know why I had this so thought. So it gets you upset in the abstract, but you're glad it doesn't apply to you. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, would I love it if somehow President Obama was like, you know what, I love this Robin O'Neill's drawing. I really want to meet her and talk to her about her work. That would be amazing for obvious reasons. But no, I like that I exist outside of, there's no threat here with me. Like nobody's going to be like, oh, that's someone we've got to pay attention to. And I do, I do like that a lot. Yeah, I think I'm going to stick with it. I keep wondering, am I lying? Am I trying to be cool here? But no, I'm really no, not. But you did say it upset you on another level. It's sort of, it, it, yeah, let me think if it does upset me at all. No, I mean, I just think it's funny how everything, and uh, recently I was thinking, like, if someone has a good story or a good anecdote of some kind, they're always like, oh, someone should write a book about that or someone should make a movie about that. And I was just thinking how weird it is that no one is ever like, oh, somebody should make a painting about that or a drawing about that. <laughs> it's just another way that we don't, count right like I can think of so many examples I come up with them all the time where we just don't really count as visual artists that often yeah but I do think it's a part of the reason I love it it's a complex thing as long as they keep paying like obscene amounts of money yeah it's hard to complain too much about it speaking of things that don't matter yeah let's talk about poetry (laughs) yeah because I love another thing I love that doesn't matter poetry really doesn't matter (laughs) at all I know it, um, it breaks my heart. That's part of the reason I do my podcast, me reading stuff. It, did you ever listen? It's okay if you haven't listened. I have listened. not listened to That's it. It's okay. I but you not, know it exists. I have not listened to the edited episodes of this podcast yet. It's definitely on the list because then I can read books while I work. Exactly. So if you're reading things that are interesting to me, I, w- I will definitely. Thank you. And I don't want to pressure you, but here's Thank the you. big selling point on my podcast is that it's usually only eight minutes or less. So it's not a big commitment. I do it twice a week. I started it about a year ago. And I don't really know why. I just always love, I love reading out loud. And so I was always reading poems out loud and recording them. And every once in a while, I would think, oh, I know a friend who would like that poem and send it. And I've just always loved radio, Stern being the main reason I loved radio for so long. And I am also very talkative. And so I was just, eventually I sort of caught on, like, I should do a podcast and just also, like, you don't get out, so yeah. you, no one's listening to you. Nobody so listens. This is, yeah. this is maybe a mental health <laughs> it's perfect. Huge. Yeah, yeah. No, it is 100% true. You're right. Because I needed some sort of outlet for my voice and converse. But, but then it's so weird because it's just one-sided. No <laughs> one's talking to me. But it helps me for some reason. Uh, okay. It has been a huge part of the process of what I do in here. Like My practice as a person who makes drawings has been helped by me doing my podcast for whatever reason. I don't really know how to explain it, but it has. So anyway, yeah, I do a quick intro that's sometimes just telling a story about whatever the hell just happened to me. Even though I stay here, things tend to happen to me. And it's usually quick and lighthearted, and sometimes it's not, but normally it is. And then I read whatever poem really got me going that week, and I try to make it quick. And the main reason is I also want contemporary poets to have their books bought. And I always plug the book and I always link where they can buy it because really poets to me are the heroes and they get no love and they get no money. Even if they get a grant, it's not enough to exist on. So whereas, you know, artists actually can get money. They really cannot. It's almost impossible. So it's just about my love of poetry and words, and it's always been a part of my work, um, my obsession with the way words are put together, and I read constantly. It's my favorite thing about being alive is reading. So it's my salute to that. Okay, you got Tao Lin and Patricia Lockwood who are like, 
within the world of poetry, yeah. they're like rock stars. Yeah, they are. Like that's like Tao Lin and Patricia Lockwood are like, whoa, like yeah. up here. Because I've heard of them. But like, who else is a contemporary poet that's really- Someone, I love everyone who reads Stephanie Gehring. Anyone who goes to me reading stuff, uh, I have read her several times. She's out of Austin right now. Uh, so that's someone who has made a bunch of chapbooks and I know still admittedly and openly struggles to get by, even so though So how she... would you describe your relationship between like anybody's writing and your drawing? Well, I usually, when I'm reading, somehow in my brain I'm breaking up. Well, Nabokov is huge for me. Like I remember making... Uh, landscape choices based on the way certain words were put together in Lolita. Okay, but I mean, I think of Nabokov as being very, you said it right and I'm saying it wrong, as being a very dense writer. Yeah. And your landscapes is detailed, but not dense. Oh, do you want me to name someone I think mimics the kind no, of No, just mood? talk about what you just said. Like, oh. Just, like, how, how does it go together? Well, here's how it goes together. I agree with you. But the way I see it is when I'm reading, there's a scene like when um, Humbert Humbert has his first actual sexual encounter with Lolita. Oh, the, oh, it, okay. It's like very kind of vague, but he then they then yeah, drive away. seduced me. Yep. That's what he says. Yeah. And then they're driving away shortly after, and there's butterflies smashed on the windshield. Mm -hmm. So I remember saying in my head when I read that, I want to make drawings that resemble what that looks and feels like to me when I read that after this first encounter, there are smashed butterflies. And knowing that Nabokov collected butterflies and was obsessed with butterflies, there's something so achingly beautiful about that to me. That's the kind of thing, and that usually gets processed for me for years, and it's nothing obvious. Like, it's nothing that I can point to in any drawing I've ever made. It's more about something emotional. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's, it's really stories getting turned into images that no one would ever associate with where they came from. Anne Carson is a contemporary poet. She wrote a book uh, called Autobiography of Red that I always recommend to everybody. And she's a big deal. Like, she's even bigger than Talon, I would okay. say. Uh, and she's much older. There's a lot of imagery in her books as well that I think years later become, like, the way I draw a mountain very specifically. It kind of comes out, even though it might be about this winged monster. I approach the way I make these landscapes thinking about these poets and the way that they see. I mean, it's very vague, even to me, but it makes total sense to me how I process in this book. Like, it'll always be something in my notebook that you were looking at. It'll be something I'll quote, and then I'll notice years later, kind of what you were talking about, about your sketchbook, where maybe you need that person's shoe that you just drew. Well, yeah, we were talking about my sketchbook earlier before we started recording, I think. Oh. I was saying that my sketchbook has random things in it, and yours looks like it has actual sketches for paintings. Okay. I don't want to give the impression that I actually end up using half of that stuff. Most Just have to keep moving not. your hands, Zach, or you'll die. Like, okay, yeah. that makes sense. But, uh, but yeah, so you use it later. Yeah, and not necessarily even knowing that it's related to it. It usually takes me some time to process. After I've made the drawing, I go, oh, that came from Ann Carson. I just know it did. Mm. But this kind of stuff, in my opinion, this happens for me because I'm so quiet so often 
throughout my life. It's a kind of meditative approach to how I read. And it, it does take that kind of processing for it to be, you know, digests into something totally else with me. So it's never like, oh, I read in Retka about that horse that killed his student that he was having an affair with. That's a beautiful poem by Retka that I love. I would never draw that horse with that girl falling off the horse and then like an image of something. It's never literal for me. It's just always, it, it processes itself in its own weird way. And it gets processed through me constantly watching TV and movies and listening to dumb radio programs. And so that kind of clashes and it comes into it too. So, And it's always a sad landscape. I know. Will that ever change? I don't know that it'll ever change. I don't have them around, but the first drawing I ever won a contest for, I was in kindergarten, and it looks almost identical to this work now. And it's just this one little kind of canoe and this very dark sky with a little pink kind of showing, like glimmering in a cloud. Yeah. And in the boat, it's got like these really sad little squares that are look like they're meant to represent people. And then I wrote, ride in the night underneath it. And I was like, this is identical. Forever I've been making these. I mean, I was honestly, whatever age you are in kindergarten, that's when I did it. So. Some of them have like a sort of sci-fi feeling to them. Yeah, a lot of these new ones do. Oh, look at this. It's not done yet, and I can't, I can't decide if I hate it or if it can uh, become something. But this one looks super like a sci-fi backdrop. Yeah, sure. I don't know where this came from. German but. expressionist kind of. Yeah. Like a Fritz Lang kind of. Oh, it totally looks like Fritz Lang. That's a good reference. I thought it was a little Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, that's interesting. Really? Because all those are black and white. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm really into the first Star Trek series, the TV series, and I then all of those backdrops, I just get obsessed with looking at them. Mm. So they are looking like that, and I think when you see like floating worlds like that, it tends to bring mm. up. I always thought I didn't like sci-fi, and then I developed a crush on Spock, and then I started to watch all of them. But yeah, a lot of this tends to have that. Spock was intentionally designed to be attractive to women. Oh, really? Yeah, Gene Roddenberry was like... Hmm. Give him eyebrows that make him look like the devil so that women will find him. He should be like the intriguing. Whoa, well it worked. Smart He's, he's also, he, well before he died, he was an art collector. Yeah, and an, and an artist, a photographer, yeah. right? He, he almost bought one of my pictures. Oh my God, um, really? Yeah. That's amazing. So he had a good collection then. I did had no well, idea. Like this is a fucked up thing. It was like, he came and he was like, oh, I really want that painting. And I called the gallery, I was like, he really wants this painting. And they're like, I mean, have you seen his collection? And I was like, oh, no, it's fucking Spock. And they're like, well, we've got someone who, I think they either had already sold it or they're saving it for like, quote, better collector. And I was like, it's oh, Spock. That's horrible. Yeah, Spock trumps all collections as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Oh my yeah. God, I'm so jealous of you. You're envious of the Werner Herzog He thing. was in my studio for like, 15 minutes. Oh, no, that's way, I still, that's better for me because do you know what Pon Far is? That's like the sex part of Vulcan, right? Yeah, that's like being in heat for Vulcans. Yeah, yeah. I would have been in Pon Far if Spock, if Leonard Nimoy was in my studio. And all it is is like they don't know what to do with themselves, so they just th slam things across the room because they're so frustrated. Okay, so I could talk about Spock all day. I'm sorry I got yeah. off on that, but I had no idea they designed him to be attractive like yeah. that. Well, yeah. Wow. Thank you. For just as you were winding down, the topic of Spock comes up. Yeah, there's no <laughs> winding like... down now. The idea of like sitting here in your studio and taking like all of these very disparate things 
all the images are kind of this black and white, and they're all landscapes. But if you take away those two genre elements, they have nothing in common. They'll be like, this is a floating island, and that's a wave, and this is like another dimension over here. You don't care as long as you can make a sad like landscape out of it. It's kind of like there all these other pop cultural and cultural cultural influences are coming in here, and they're all getting reflected into the same like. Oh, that's the part that you're going for in many different ways. It's, I don't know. Like, I guess I've never heard anyone say it like I don't that. Know if I'm just making stuff up, but it just feels like you're distilling. Like that's a Machu Picchu landscape, right? Yeah. That is a, like a surfing picture. You know what I mean? <laughs> but they've both been distilled to that aesthetic. And it's like, can we sap the life out of, out of <laughs> this? You know, like. <laughs> oh my God, will that make the cut or do I need to write that down right now? Can't, that is my goal. Can I sap the life and the like joy out of anything you throw me? I'm gonna try to do that. <laughs> Uh, that is hilarious, Zach, and I've never thought about it like that. But you know what? You're seeing it in a way that most people don't. Like, most people get annoyed with me, friends, I would say, who know me well and are also artists. They're like, you love all this stuff, but it's never in your drawings. Like, for instance, I don't know. I mean, I've always loved Kanye West. People are like, where's the Kanye West? Or I, I know hip-hop really well. Why is there no hip-hop? This doesn't look at all hip-hop. I know everything about Beverly Hills 90210. Like, I guarantee I'm the world's expert on that TV show. Do you see that around here? And that annoys people, but it sounds... And also, do they feel like there's probably... Contemporary art probably has the yeah. 90210 obsession like, covered and the Kanye... Like, there's probably, like, 90 people Thank you. That. I think you look at a lot of art like I do, which is, like, I've had it. Like, I don't fucking care. I don't want to look at it, you know? <laughs> I think it is somewhere in here, but I'm not gonna make that obvious. It's almost like the way I read poetry and how it comes into the drawings eventually. I know it's in there in some weird, only I know kind of way, even though I don't even know. But also, does it have to be? No, it doesn't have to be. Just because I watch hours and hours of Beverly Hills 90210 and have for the last eight years of my life in my studio, I don't think that means that, that Dylan's face needs to be in any of these drawings. Like, I think that... That's just a part of my strategy on how to stay working in here and be entertained at the same time. But what you're saying must be something different. And I, I want to keep thinking about that because it does seem to be I'm not happy with a drawing unless it's a somber landscape. I think that's basically what. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's just like the, the variety of like actual content seems pretty wide if you ignore the fact that it always ends up being a somber landscape. Okay, like, that's good. You know good. what I mean? Like, that's a bunch of pumpkins, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Like, that's a bunch of pumpkins, and that's a wave, and that is a floating island. Like, that sounds super wacky. It doesn't yeah. look wacky at all. It looks like something someone drew before they killed themselves. And they all look like they're made by the same person, yes, though? Yes, for though, sure. Okay. They definitely do. I know we're doing a podcast, too, but this has been an awesome studio visit for me, which I really needed right now because this is a lot of new stuff, and— I think that you're seeing it in a way that a lot of people wouldn't, and it's helping me see it a little more accurately. So it is a wide variety of weird shit that somehow uh, I make my own, which is a weird way of putting some weird veil of sadness over it, I Well, guess. I mean, to me, it kind of reminds me, like, Cormac McCarthy wrote Blood Meridian, which is a Western, and then he wrote, like, No Country for Old Men, which is, like, a thriller, and he wrote The Road, which is, like, a post-apocalypse sci-fi but they have way more in common with each other than they do with whatever it is that they're 
nominal other things in their genre are. Yeah. Because it's like, it's the composition. It's the surface stuff. Yeah, it's like the style and the, uh, the landscape and the ideas embedded in it are more important. Yeah, that's it. And I wonder if that's one of those things about however the person is making whatever work it is, poetry, literature, art, movies, some things we just are, you know, that you can't get away from certain aspects of what makes you whatever kind of artist you are, don't you think? I really think that I'm built this way. Like, whatever it is, that mechanism that turns all of these that way, I think that I kind of can't really help it, which makes me sound like a savant or something, though, so I worry about that a bit. I don't know. I actually wasn't seeing these as such disparate images when taken apart from the other ones, but they absolutely are. And there's even more in ones that aren't on the wall right now that are even weirder. Like I copied some Mirandi stuff uh, in there. Like there's vases within that one. And this has been a challenge though because I got so sick of just drawing my guys. Like those guys with sweatsuits, gun to the head, I couldn't do one right now. Like I just could not, I couldn't physically get myself to draw one. So I think I'm exercising these different, I don't know, I'm also searching for symbols that make sense to me but aren't the same ones I was using for so long. So I think there's a search happening that's very evident in these, which is why I was happy to be talking about them in this state, not quite solved. Mm. Do you like having conversations about your work when it's not quite there yet? Or does that bother you? He's like you, he's just alone in his room. (laughs) You know, so are you. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry? You are So are you. Yeah, I'm making a rug, I'm latch hooking a rug. I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, nobody's coming over and talking to you about the rug, right? No, nobody is. And do you want them to, though? You don't want them to, right? I kind of wish somebody would appear for five minutes and then disappear. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be great. That's a good conversation. Well, I can do that now that you guys set me up with Skype. If you need me to look for five minutes and then leave. Do you have the rug? Do I have the rug? Yeah. Hold on a second. Oh, yes, he's going to get it. Yeah, all right. This is perfect. We're going to do it. Oh, he's been sitting on the floor this whole time and we didn't know it. Yeah, I guess I didn't really realize that. <laughs> I thought he was at a desk like us. He's often at a desk. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. I love that pattern. Is that about as big as you imagine? That's bigger than I thought. I hadn't thought of a size. Now, is that tr- like traditional uh, rug-making yarn, whatever yarn that would be? It's called latch hook, which is what little kids do, and my sister used to do them when I was little. And I just could not afford carpeting in my apartment, so I thought, like, I could get, like, a five-foot latch hook and make six of them. It's Mardi Gras colors. I got a whole plan, but, like, everything is, like, this, like, one little hook. That is fascinating. (laughs) I love it. So there's going to be more colors than just those three? Yeah, well... See, this is your time to kick us out. It hasn't been five minutes, but... (laughs) It's a modified tumbling box. It's like those stairs that look like they're going up or down, right? Like Hubert, yeah. I love that. Hubert stands on the tumbling box pattern, which is mostly Amish. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, from what I understand. Wow. The watching Antiques Roadshow. Oh, I do love that show. I love that show too. I love your rug already. That's really beautiful. There you go. Oh, thanks. It's a positive critique right there. I'm a fan. Yeah, I want to see it finished. And you're going to make six of them? Yes. I love it. Yeah, I'm with you guys. I normally don't want people in here. Like, I very rarely have anybody in here. I don't mind people in, but they're like, that's cool. 
Yeah, yeah, like a like, casual thing. Yeah. I mean, but even if they're like, that's really cool. But I mean, that's like usually it. Yeah. It's ironic because John and I like talk to people about their stuff all the time. <laughs> but like, you know, actually, you know, someone will come over and interview us, but they don't do it in depth. And this is why we do our show is because. And to have artists interviewing, artists is a much yeah. better thing. M- way better. Oh, but wait, have you lied to us yet? Are there any lies? Oh, let's think. No, no. I wish I, w- I wish I would have in some way. Let me think if I lied at all. No, everything about my dad was true. <laughs> everything about my history was true. Uh, I'd love to go out with a big lie, but I can't think of one right now. All right. It's usually when I'm nervous a lot. Like, that's when I lie. Something will make me nervous and I'll start making some weird shit up. It's never anything that matters at all. Like, just like that, why I told that guy that I don't live here. I don't know why I did that. But man, no lies with you guys. I speak from the heart when I'm talking to you two. Sweet. You know it. All right. Wow. <laughs> well, thank you, guys. This was awesome. Cool. Thank you. We really appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming over. Good to meet you guys, all of you. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest, Robin O'Neill, who has a new book that just came out. It's called 20 Years of Drawings. It's 200 pages of Robin's first major monograph. It's available from Archon Projects wherever you buy books. Robin will also be having a book signing this Saturday, the 16th, in New York City at the Susan Inglet Gallery from 4 to 6 p.m. Also, John has... I'm almost done with my book called The Puerto Rican War. It's a graphic novel made all on woodcut about the failed revolution in Puerto Rico in 1950. How they tried to kill President Truman, how they tried to overthrow some towns, the results, and the state of Puerto Rico. All made in enough woodcuts that it took me years and gave me arthritis. I'll have more details for you soon, and I'm excited. Thanks. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at We Eat Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We also have a Patreon set up so we can keep the kitchen fired up and cooking new episodes for you all year. We have goodies available for donors like stickers, zines, and exclusive episodes. Please consider helping us with whatever you can at patreon.com backslash we eat art, all one word. We eat art is produced by Paping and Mnemonic Recordings. Our editor, engineer, sound producer, engineer, sound producer, editor, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. Because everyone who does drawings like this <laughs> sits at a fucking desk listening to podcasts and radio shows it's all true. day. We it's all love listening to people talk, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the best way. Because they listen to all your music and they listen to all your music again and then you're like, I'm going to go crazy. Mnemonic Recordings <laughs>